Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today is a man of many thoughts, talents, and accomplishments, to say the least. Mr. Howard Bloom. Howard is an author and previously worked with as one of the most prominent publicists in rock and roll history for a few names you might know, like Michael Jackson. Prince, Bob Marley, Billy Joel, ACDC, Kiss, Aerosmith, Phil Collins, Ario Speedwagon, ZZ Top, and Run DMC, just to name a few. And that all changed in 1988 when Howard developed chronic fatigue syndrome and was bedridden for 15 years. And slowly, he began to recover. And with that recovery came a renewed passion for science that he had since his days as a young man. Howard has written six books, and I'm sure it's a lot more than that, including How I Accidentally Started the 60s, How I Met Your Mother, no, just kidding, (laughs) Global Brain and the Lucifer Principle. And we're about to enter a powerful... And quite interesting mind and here, a really incredible journey. So let's get right to it. I am honored to have him on the show today. Mr. Howard Bloom, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to see you. Absolutely. And a big shout out before we even get started to Dr. Simon Mills, who at first I thought was the most interesting man in the world, but we may have a new record holder here as we dig in. So for anybody out there, there's a wealth of information. There's a wealth of content online about Dr. Howard Bloom, not Dr. Mr. Howard Bloom, uh, Dr. Simon Mills. I don't want to mix them up here. So some things, if you want to dig deeper, go for it. And we're going to touch on things that actually interest me about his story that I think is going to be valuable to my audience. So let's hit the rewind button here and let's set the stage for the conversation starting out early in your career. And you graduated NYU when you're about 25 and you became an editor at Circus Magazine, which was a rock and roll publication. What was that initial draw to rock and roll and you know live performances back at like the Electric Zoo? And wh- where did that passion come from? Well, that's that is uh, the basic passion started when I was 10 years old and dove into microbiology and theoretical physics and um, and then developed some small scientific credentials when I was 12 and co-designed a computer that won a science some science fair awards. Um, I built uh, my first Boolean algebra machine. I was schlepped off to a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo. And we spent an hour in his office discussing the hottest scientific topic of the time, which is Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe and the, the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And then at 16, I was working at the world's largest cancer research facility um, during a summer and came up with a theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe called the Bloom Big Bagel that predicted the beginning, middle, and end of the universe and predicted dark, I mean, it not only described these things, it predicted dark energy um, 38 years in advance of the discovery of dark energy. And this was all before the age of? That's all before the age of 16. The only Most word that I caught I there that self. I actually understand that you just said was schlep. That's literally the only word that I actually caught. And <laughs> I, 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 I kid here, but I mean, listen, you guys listening out there, I mean, start going down the rabbit hole. Start freaking Googling this shit. Go down the rabbit holes. But I want to talk rock and roll for a little bit. And, right. Okay, you know, go you, ahead. Yeah. Let's, you so, so the rock and roll thing was a series of accidents. Um, How so? It, because, well, I was obsessed with music from the time I was 12, but I was listening to Beethoven, Bartok, Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, awesome. Mozart, stuff like that. Why? Because the kids in Buffalo, they normally wanted to have nothing to do with me. The only time I was of use when I w- was when I was a target and they could chase me around the block. They could beat me up. They could humiliate me. So the music, popular music and what eventually became rock and roll was their music. Not so, my music. So so I don't want to date you too far, but I am a University of Buffalo graduate. And I assume uh-huh. back when you, went, when you went there, all it was was South Campus. So they were chasing you down Main Street. 
uh, over over there. But what were they listening to back then? Um, well, bad. Those were the days, unfortunately, of Teresa Brewer and Connie Francis. All music that made me ill. Um, I I couldn't look. My my childhood was monstrous. It was horrible. So anything that was associated with my childhood was out, as far as I was concerned. So how does somebody with such an analytical and scientific mind get into music, and how do you apply that analytic mindset and principles into music PR? Because I was absolutely fascinated with something. I don't know how I found out about it, but when I was 12 years old, I realized that there was something really wrong with my synagogue. Um, it was set up like a Lutheran church, and which meant that there were these long, narrow, hardwood pews. And if you wanted to go to a seat in the middle, everybody else had to somehow you know, remove their kneecaps. Um, no, so that no you could, yeah, once you were in, you couldn't get out again. Um, and you stood when the rabbi told you to, and you sang when the rabbi told you, and there was no ecstatic experience. Um, there, there was no sense of transcendence, none. And for some reason, at the age of 12, I realized this was missing. And I went off in search of that. Now, part of what led to this is that um, I realized at 12 I was an atheist and I couldn't confess it to myself because I, I had the first party coming up to which I would be invited in my entire 13 years in Buffalo, And it New was York. yours. It was my bar mitzvah, right. And if I confessed I was an atheist, there went the whole thing and all the presents and checks and everything. <laughs> what so a dilemma. What yeah, a so, Kanahara. So I, so I suppressed this until I did the bar mitzvah. And then, you you know, you have to do two months of writing thank you notes to everybody who gave you anything, even a Kleenex. Painless. And then um, finally, when August ended, I finished. Now I could confess to myself I was an atheist, but a strange thing happens after the end of August. It's called the high holidays. They come early in September. So my parents didn't care that I said I was an atheist. They managed to stuff me into a suit. Um, they managed to stuff me into their blue Fraser four-door automobile, Jeez. drive me all the way to Richmond Avenue where the synagogue was. And, and then they tried to get me out of the car and I refused to go any farther. So I'm I'm holding on to the door frame with my hands, this sturdy American-made door frame. And my parents are pulling at my ankles. And I have a sudden realization. My companions up till now have been Michelangelo. I mean, not Michelangelo, have been um, Galileo and uh, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the guy who invented the microscope. And one of them turned a, took a lens and turned it up to the heavens and invented the telescope. The other one took a lens and turned it down at pond water and invented the microscope. And my parents are dragging at my ankles, willing to drag me the two blocks up the street as if I were a sack of meat, willing to totally pulverize my face on the pavement. And I had a sudden realization, okay, I'm an atheist. So there are no gods in the heavens. There are no gods under the earth, but there are gods in this picture. Where are the gods? They're in the passions within my parents. Um, so I went off on a search for the gods within, and that eventually led me to rock and roll. And I, and, and I love this because you're well documented in talking and writing about your pursuit of, quote, the, the god and people, otherwise referred to as discovering a person's soul. And the rock stars you work with have a unique ability to, to tap into that soul and, and, and express it. So my question is, wh what is soul? And how do you find a person's soul? Okay, soul seems to be the most personal thing that you've got. And you don't even have direct contact with it most of the time. It moves you somehow and you tend to be unaware of it. Um, and yet it is the most public thing you have. Why? How do we know this? Well, first of all, when I was 16 years old, the, the kids in my high school who loathed me, um, used to, they voted me the head of something called the program committee. You have five school assemblies a week that start each day. I programmed two of them. I emceed five of them. And at first, going in front of an audience of 350 is- Terrifying. Uh, yeah, absolutely terrifying. And then it becomes as natural as breathing. And one day the juniors came to me because they voted me into this position two years in a row. And, and they said, uh, could you please, ever, we have a dance coming up. Could you advertise it for us? And they didn't realize the irony of what they were asking. 
Because if there were a dance anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland. Please don't so Niagara I put Falls piece, in the middle of it. Yes. Yeah, so I put a piece of music on the turntable and and I cannot dance. My parents sent me to a, a whole year of dance lessons in the hope of making me normal, which never worked. And um, so I just cannot dance. And I danced and it was totally free form. It had nothing to do with any standard movements. They, you've they ever call seen. that interpretive dance these days. I guess. So there I was interpretive dancing and nobody had ever seen anything quite like it. And I saw the faces of the audience melt. I saw their pupils dilating. Um, I saw them come together as if they were one big amoeba of energy. And I felt that amoeba reach a pseudopod, reach an arm out to me and channel all of its energy through me. And I had an out-of-body experience. I watched this whole thing from the ceiling as it was taking place. And when it was over, um, they did something they'd never done before in my time at that school and never would do again, not for homecoming queens, not for football heroes, not for anything. They surged down to the edge of the stage. They picked me up on their shoulders. They carried me out of the auditorium and they carried me up to the class above. So what does this have to do with soul? That is the ultimate soul experience. And is it deeply private? Am I alone in a room with nothing else around, simply contemplating the great infinite? Not at all. I am right there in the heart of people. If if these people are aflame, I'm the match head. Um, and my artists went through this kind of thing over and over and over again. In fact, Peter Townsend, Peter Townsend and George Harrison um, these are ancient figures. Most people don't know the their names who these is days. Back on tour, they are playing in Queens at the new arena. If you want to see Amazing. a show coming up. Amazing. So they were trying to get Eric Clapton off of heroin. And George tried all kinds of things and it didn't work. And he finally wrote a song that was just a list of chocolate, fancy chocolate box chocolates names. Montelle Mort and Strawberry Queen and all kinds of stuff. Peter decided to take a crack at it. And he went into Eric and he said, look, Eric, I understand why you're doing drugs. You go out on stage in front of an audience of 70,000 people. And for, for 65 minutes, you have 70,000 souls pulsing through you as if you were an empty pipe, going to the Godhead and then being channeled back again. So you are filled with 70,000 souls and God. And then you come off stage, and the minute you walk behind the curtain, that pipe that has been filled is empty, and it hurts. And you try to fill that with heroin. Well, that is the ultimate experience in soul that uh, Peter Townsend was talking about. That's what I went through at 16. That's what Prince and Michael Jackson and John Mellencamp and all of my artists went through over and over again. For John Mellencamp, it was such a profound experience. Um, and such a painful experience that he he's one of the most electric performers you've ever seen in your life. He and Prince, just amazing. And But when he came off stage, he looked as if there were no eyes in his eye sockets anymore. These looked like hollowed caves. And we used to walk him back to a room within the dressing room where he could be locked away with just one person, his wife, with me, somebody that he trusted. And it would take an hour for his personality to wow. return to his body. And that, it was one of the most painful things he ever experienced. And he swore every single time that he would never tour again because of this transformation. But what brought him back to touring? Um, Did it chase a high? Fact, it, yes, I would imagine that he was never so alive as when he was on stage in front of an audience. Um, so that soul. Now, God knows where it comes from. In fact, if you read Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul and the Power of Bits of Rock and Roll, my latest book, it'll give you a lot of clues as to where that may come from. But the fact is, once you've experienced it, it's unlike anything you've ever imagined in your life. And to be an artist, that soul has to come forth. In fact, wow. I used to tell my potential clients, look, I didn't go out looking for clients. They came looking for me. And I would say, I will only work with you on the following condition, that you understand that I'm not going to fashion an artificial mask called an image. 
right. and and sit there and tell you that if you use this mask, that I will make you a star. Far from it. If you're going to work with, if you want a mask, go to my best competitor. I'll have you in his office in two hours. Um, if you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It is not about an exchange of money. It is an exchange of raw human soul. And if you're going to work with me, I'm going to come out to wherever you are, whatever your environment is, after I've studied you for six weeks, and I'm going to sit down with you with no managers, no wives, no intercessors of any kind, just you and me alone in the room. And why? What am I going to be looking for? When you sit down at two o'clock in the afternoon in front of a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, and you have to write a lyric for your next album, you know you could never possibly write a lyric. You have no idea of how you've ever written a lyric in your life. But on a reasonably good day, by two, by four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lyric in front of you. I'm going to find the gods inside of you that wrote that lyric. Jeez. Um, when you the creative out, process. Yeah. And when you go out in front of an audience, it's the same thing we just discussed. And I'm going to find the god inside of you that danced you like a marionette on stage. And if you're willing to deal with that, and then if you're willing to let me come out every year and do this soul diving all over again to see how your soul has matured or changed since the last time I saw you, then I'll work with you. If not, you have to go to my competitor. Call that a Pandora's box of a question there, Mr. Bloom there. But let me ask you, because <laughs> I, I, when I have an opportunity to speak to, you're, you're a historian, you're, you, you were there in that time and that moment. What, talk to us about a comparison between you know Prince and, and, and Michael Jackson. What was one of those attributes that they both had in spades? Oh, God, it is so hard to compare them. It was as if I'm asking because they're different. Yeah, it's as if they were opposites. Michael Jackson worked on his stage performance for a tour for a year. He crafted every creative element he could think of into it while still making sure that it formed a complete whole. And then he rehearsed so he could do every movement the same every single night with the same 110% passion every single night. On the other hand, Prince and John Mellencamp, the two of them, you could not predict what they were going to do next. They were seized by the gods, and they the way they danced each night was just a little bit different. So what was an improvisation, an improvisation with a lot of rehearsal, but an improvisation for Prince or an improvisation for John Mellencamp was the most seriously, studiously rehearsed thing you've ever seen in your life for Michael Jackson. But talk about this for Michael Jackson that you speak about, too, was something that I found interesting was his unparalleled ast astonishment. And you said, quote, you've never seen anyone that had that level astonishment for, for anything. Why no, is that? Like, never, that's crazy, right? I never imagined that a level of astonishment like that could even exist. I, I mean, let's get, let's give it everyday example. Was like, would he be astonished by just like everyday things? Yeah, I mean, because he grew uh, up as a child, he he grew up in fame. With I mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like he grew up in fame, so there's probably a lot of things in his life that he never experienced as a common as a commoner. Well, but there's this quality of astonishment. So I'll tell you about the first meeting I ever had with Michael. So I once I said, uh, first of all, I said no to the Jacksons over and over again, because I kept explaining to them that anyone, uh, that any talking dog could be taught to say Michael Jackson on the phone, and any magazine editor anywhere in the country would give you a cover in exchange for an interview. So you don't need me. And when I finally said yes, because it turned out they were up against something truly evil, um, I started spending three days a week with the Jacksons and working four days a week back in my office in Manhattan. Um, and I flew out to Encino for my three days with the Jacksons. And we were standing, the, Marlon had a pool house. A pool house is a little building just big enough for one big room on the first floor and another big room on the second floor. And the, the room is lined with arcade games, which is bloody astonishing because nobody could afford one of those things much less uh all, all half, of them uh, yeah all a of dozen them. of them <laughs> and in the center there's a pool table so the brothers and i the brothers always kept me at the center so i'm flanked by michael's brothers on either side at the pool table the jackson and, four yeah and we're and we are <laughs> discussing um 
merchandising. And I'm trying to explain. You guys put on the most astonishing tour anyone has ever seen. You need tour jackets and T-shirts that are the most astonishing anybody's ever seen. And then I hear the screen door open. There's a meeting coming up with the art director from Columbia Records. And Michael is supposed to be there for that meeting. So I didn't grow up around other human beings. I grew up around laboratory rats and guinea pigs and guppies. So I don't know normal human rituals. But somebody, uh, when I was 19, tried to teach me something, which is somebody comes into a room that other people want you to meet. You walk over, you stick out your hand, you say, hi, my name is fill in the blank. And the other person sticks out his hand and says the same thing with a different name. <laughs> Um, so, so I heard the screen door opening. I suspected it was Michael. I walked over. Now I had read a stack of articles this thick, um, on Michael. Everyone listening at home, he's holding up his, his thumb and, and forefinger to the extension. Yes. Right. So in other words, four inches thick, probably there a thousand go. articles. And every single one of them said, Michael Jackson is a bubble baby. And if you reach out to touch him, he will withdraw in fear. So. The guy coming in was halfway through the door. I stuck out my hand. I said, hi, my name is Howard. He stuck out his hand. He said, hi, my name is Michael. Um, and I said, I got a press release to read you. Um, I need your approval on it. Where can we do this? And he said, why don't we go upstairs? So we walked up the little tiny set of stairs to a room the size, precisely the size of the room downstairs. But this one was just crammed to the ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. So Michael found a place to sit on one amplifier. I found a place to sit on another. And I started to read Michael this press release. Now, one thing to understand, Adam, is I've been working obsessively on my writing since I was 16 years old, obsessively. And I, I was what NYU thought would be the next great poet to come out of NYU. I edited the literary magazine. At NYU, we won two National Academy of Poets prizes. Let's just say that you're an accomplished author. Yeah, and you take so, a lot of pride in your craft. Let's just yeah, let's summarize me, yes, that. The, the craft <laughs> means a great deal to me. So I'm reading this to Michael, and Michael's sitting there, and his body slumps when I get past the first two sentences. And then I get two more sentences in, and his body slumps a little bit more. And I get a, a whole paragraph in, and his body slumps even more. And when I get to the end... He says, oh, man, that's beautiful. Did you write that? Now, no one ever before had seen the art in a press release. No one. And no one ever would again. The only pe person capable of seeing it that I would ever meet in my life, Adam, was Michael Jackson. So then we Fuck went down. Story. Shit. Yeah, we, <laughs> then we went downstairs and the art director had showed up from Columbia. And uh, the brothers and Michael and I all stood grouped on one side of the billiard table. And she stood on the other with five of the most gorgeous art portfolios you've ever seen. And as I said, the brothers always flanked me. So I was in the center with my right um, shoulder up against Michael's right shoulder, my right elbow up against his right elbow, my right knee up against his left knee. And she slid the first portfolio across the table and Michael started to open it. And he'd only gotten one square inch into the first picture and his knees began to buckle. He got another two square inches into the picture. His knees buckled even further. He was going, oh, 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 oh. And his body motion is being conveyed to me by his elbow and, and his shoulder up against mine. So my body's reflecting the same thing. And Michael is having an aesthetic orgasm. And wow. you can hear from his sounds and feel from his body that he is seeing more in four square inches of this picture than the artist ever saw in the whole portfolio. What a fascinating He's, He is seeing the infinite in the tiniest of things. And that was Michael's quality of awe, wonder, and surprise. Now, what got me into science when I was 10 years old were a book taught me that the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. The first is the law of courage. The next is the law of awe, wonder, and surprise. 
And I never in my life would have suspected that a quality of all wonder and surprise like Michael's could possibly exist in a human being on planet Earth. What a freaking story. But like, did your mind kind of go to like that side, like immediately that science, like this is like proving out my, the hypothesis in real life, in action. Here it is right in front of me with Michael frickin' Jackson. No, it took, it took decades of processing um, to realize what was going on. Cause you start not in the moment, not in the moment. Yeah. Talk about the soul and the fact that your soul is with you all the time, but you don't register that it's there most of the time. The way that my body and my emotions are registering Michael is by being Michael. And that's on a level that literally took me decades to be able to articulate in words. Wow. And thank you for, share, for sharing that story. I'd like to take a moment and introduce you to a great new cookware line that I love, Caraway. I recently had the founder, Jordan Nathan, on the show to share his story and what makes Caraway different than other cookware out there. They are on a mission to craft well-designed home goods that thoughtfully raise the standards of what you cook with. Simply put, their products are designed to make your life easier and healthier. And Caraway is setting the new standard for healthy cooking by creating products with no harmful chemicals. Their ceramic-coated aluminum core cookware is free of PTFE, lead, and other toxic materials. Its ceramic surfaces are naturally slick, meaning minimal oil and cleaning. Trust me. The cookware looks great too and is very design forward, available in five shades and double as decor in your home. They're also committed to being eco-friendly in design, production, and sustainable packaging. We love Caraway in our home and I'm sure you will too. Visit shop.carawayhome.com. That's C-A-R-A-W-A-Y home.com and use promo code podcast 20 to save on your first order. Thanks. I want, to, I want to touch on another thing, and I love the scene in the documentary that captures your personality pretty candidly. You're digging through what appears it was like a broom closet, and you're going through you know old records, and you pull up the Run DMC, and you talk about how insane that time was. Why was it so insane for a freaking white Jewish executive at that time to stand next to a hip-hop group? Um, behind, behind, because, behind, behind, okay, behind right. the hip-hop group. Let's, yes, very much behind, because I never allowed important, anybody important to take my picture there. with any of my artists because it was about them, I was a kamikaze, and it was not about me. And I wanted to be very explicit about that. Well, the deal is that um, it was 1976, I think, and uh, ABC Records had just purchased Gulf and Western's 14 record companies, and uh, I was credited with having doubled the value of that Gulf and Western music holding, Um, which I didn't believe at first. It took me decades to realize why that was true, uh, because it's very hard to to recognize you've done something like that. And and when I moved over to ABC, complete with my staff, they had a record at number three on the charts. Nothing like that had happened in my year at Gulf and Western. Nothing, anything like that. And I wanted to get to work on that immediately. I was excited. And, and it was an all-white PR staff on the West Coast at ABC Records. And you should have heard the contempt in their voices where, if the subject tried to turn to this number three record. Why? Because it was a black singer. And it was very unhip, as much if it's possible to believe this. In 1976, for white record company executives to work on a black act was just totally uncool. And I realized the injustice of this immediately. And I I got a limousine. I went out to the airport to pick up the band's manager, um, knowing that I would have him as a captive audience in right. midtown traffic. And um, strategic, strategic. Yeah. Meeting and location. I said, look, I I understand that your band prides itself on its democracy. Every member is equal to every other member. But if you let me put all the attention on your lead vocalist and you cover my ass with the rest of the band, I guarantee you I will give you a sir. And I've only said that twice in my life. This was the first time. And he let me do that. He let me focus on the lead singer and her name is Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Yes. So the deal is nobody would work on these bands. And I thought that was outrageous absolutely outrageous. So I worked with all my heart and soul on the black acts that nobody else would touch. 
Um, and I became the leading black publicist in the music industry, despite being, yeah, from Buffalo, New York, and white and but what drew, what and drew small. you to hip, what drew you to hip hop, right? What, what drew even if it's infancy and its development as an art form, like what drew you to that? It's rock well, and roll roots. Well, I got a I I had been following this strange artist um, named Sylvia. Um, Art Cass at Buddha Records had put out an album by a middle-aged black woman. She didn't have the tiny little waist that people right. like Shakira and um, and uh, Beyonce have. She didn't have all the sexual features that they have. She was middle-aged. She looked like a pillow. Um, <laughs> and so I thought this record was going to go nowhere, and it went platinum. Then he bought out, brought out another record by this mysterious artist named Sylvia, and it went platinum. And when I dug around a little bit, I discovered that this was the Sylvia of Mickey and Sylvia, a band that had had a hit called Love is Strange that I thought was just terrific. And she had not only sung on that record, she had produced that record at a time when you, if you were a woman, you were not allowed behind the control board. If you were black, you were not allowed behind the control board in a studio. Um, and yet she had taken over the control board. So I thought this woman was just fucking remarkable. She had a skill set. And, <laughs> and I got a call from her one day and she said, I'm working on this new form of music. And would you be willing to work on it with me? And well, it was Sylvia Robinson, for God's sakes. Of course, I was going to be willing to work on it with her. And she had been cruising the South Bronx in her Rolls Royce and she had seen kids emptying an entire street, setting up turntables and huge speakers down at the end of the street and doing this new form of music. So she had gone back to her studio in New Jersey, which was a tiny little former dry cleaning building, just big enough for four rooms in a railroad format. And she had called in her studio musicians and she had recorded a piece of music in this style and um, and it had gone platinum. Sylvia had a platinum habit here, and <laughs> it was by the Sugar Hill Gang, and it was the very first rap record. So when that took off, Sylvia went back to the South Bronx, combed through the groups, found what she considered to be the best of them, and brought them back to her studio and signed them. And that was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Um, now, one day, I was up at the uh, offices of Chrysalis Records, because I had a client there, Billy Idol. And there was an executive I'd known since he was an unkempt hippie at CBS Records. And by now, he had learned to wear a power suit, get a haircut, and look like he was a record company president. He was obviously up. on the path to CEO. And um, he took me aside in an empty corridor, and he said, look, you've, uh, I've watched as you have worked very hard to establish your reputation. And you've done it. You've done a very good job of it. But this music is shit. You know it's shit. I know it's shit. It's going to blow up and be over in six months. And when it blows up, it's going to leave shit all over your face. And Adam, I don't know if you've had these experiences, but sometimes when you give your, you know, the self below the floorboards of the self enough time to process something, yep. sometimes it takes two hours, sometimes it takes three months. Two years. Um, it'll take a message like that and realize this is the very reason I have to commit yes to, this to fuel to your fire music. yeah so i got even farther involved and then profile records started coming to me and they were a pioneering uh label in rap and they said we've got run dmc would you be willing to handle it so i was there at the beginning of rap with grandmaster flash and the furious five and i was there for rap's crossover um with run dmc and i wasn't just there I was working my my ass off and my staff's ass off so that we could establish this form of music we'd been told was shit. What was the biggest challenge in establishing it in the mainstream? Was it just that? Acceptance? Well, look, I set up my staff of people that were trained within my company and my way of doing things. So the average PR firm thought it was doing a magnificent job. We've got six good press breaks in a month. I felt that I should fire a staff member if she got less than 60 hmm. press breaks in a month. Um, and the average was 120 press breaks a month. Why? Because 
you don't register what you've only read once. You don't realize it, but you register something on the 15th exposure. Right. You register a piece of music on the 15th exposure, and you think you've just heard it for the first time. So I had to produce repetition in as many media outlets of as many kinds as possible over and over and over again. So we get up to the 15th exposure and you would register it. Um, and that really, everybody in my office was trained to do the things that way. Nobody else in the business had ever done anything of that kind. I don't think anybody does Industry anything of that kind today. It. Human psychology, how many times does it take to resonate? That's right, because here I was coming out of the sciences. Ah, um, that was your superpower. And, yeah, and, and it turns out that if you come out of the sciences, you don't give a shit about whether you're doing things the way they're supposed to be done or not. Um, you really don't care because you started as an outsider. And it, so if they reject you, who cares? What counts is whether it works. Um, Fascinating. Let's talk, let's let's on on that topic there. Let's talk about the 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 history of public relations and how much has changed. And there's a personal rule you live by, which is to protect the truth at any price, including your life. What the hell do you say about PR these days? Is it making well? Is it, is it just um, is it a knife right here? It's not just PR. It's the entire marketing machine. The machine, correct. And the mere fact that it has the name marketing. Um, the word marketing says that uh, that. People are consumers, um, uh, and that uh, that you are not working with human soul. You're working with a product. Um, it totally dehumanizes the process. Mm -hmm. Well, music is one of many things that is about the core of human soul. Now, it's not about these superficial things at all. And if you don't recognize that, you're make, making a big mistake. I was uh, Tom Silverman, who is the founder of Tommy Boy Records which also was pioneering rap at the same time mm -hmm. that I was. Um, Tom invited me. He had founded something in the 1970s uh, called the New Music Seminar. It was a tremendous success every year. Then he disbanded it for a while, and now he was bringing it back again in something like 2006. And he wanted me to come as an honored guest, which meant I would be in the front row someplace. And I don't normally do that. I only appear if not I'm your, going to be not speaking. Your thing. Not your thing. Yeah, but 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 it was Tom, and I'm very fond of Tom. So I showed up, and a person that I had known for years was on stage, and he was representing Ben Harper. And he was bragging about all the commercial tie-ins he had gotten for Ben Harper. And I got up and basically said, you are screwing this artist. <laughs> this is one of the most authentic artists you've ever heard in your life. Yeah. You can hear blood oozing from every pore when he sings, and you are trivializing him. You are saying that he is not what he is. Instead, he's an agglomeration of I mean, all of the You did this all on stage. You did this all on stage. I did it from the front row. So you were, it, was, it was a heckling, so to speak. Yeah, I was heckling. Uh, the and guy what was who his was, reaction? What was Tommy Boy um, doing? Oh, he... he he disregarded Daggers. me as if I were a bug. Daggers. No, just simply disregarded what I was saying totally. The and guest Tom, of honor heckling. The guest of honor heckling. That is brilliant. And and Tom Silverman still to this day has never understood what I was talking about. So the deal is an icon plays a very important role in your life. When you hit 12 years old and 13 years old, you are going through <clears throat> a massive transformation. You are going from being a child to a sexual being, and it is confusing as all hell. And at that point, there are certain people whose posters you hang up on your bedroom wall, and those are the people you grow up with. Those are your role models. Those are the people around whom your identity forms. And if I, being one of those people who builds that icon um, that you were latching onto, do not stick to the truth at any price including the price of your life. I am doing you a permanent disservice. Well, all of the celebrities today are doing their their followers a permanent disservice because all of them are being marketed as if they were cornflakes or pieces yeah. of plastic. Sad. It's it's really sad.
I know I want to be conscious of your time here. So, you know, there's a huge piece of his story, which talks about the 15 years uh, um, chronic fatigue syndrome. So everyone check that out. Go to Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan does a great job of doing that. So I'm going to switch it. And I want to talk about another rule you have. You mentioned before is look at the things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Let's unpack that a bit for everyone in my audience. How could they apply that just profound statement in everyday life? Well, look at the things you feel every day. Look at the things that you want every day uh, and try to give them to other people. Look, one of the things capitalism is all about, there's a hidden mandate underlying capitalism. It's be messianic. Mm -hmm. It's save, lift, upgrade and empower your neighbor. If you save, lift and upgrade one neighbor, you get a dollar. A hundred neighbors, you get a hundred dollars. A hundred million people around the globe, a hundred million dollars. Um, that's what the, been the secret to people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. They have reached into their own set of needs and desires, and they have built the ideal system in one case for ordering things online, and in the other case for taking humanity beyond the bounds of the gravity well. some A deep dream that's built into us so deeply that you could see it in plants and animals the need to rise, the need to get above things. So if you see these needs inside yourself, serve them in others. And for example, let's imagine you're working at McDonald's. You have two different ways to approach your job. Um, one is to imagine that you are being exploited and to bitterly resent every minute that right. you are at McDonald's. And as a consequence for all those people in a line who come up to get something from you, you frown at every single one of you. You make their day a little bit worse. Yeah. But what happens Negative to energy. you? Yeah, when you encounter somebody who's just all piss and lime it's juice. It's a effect. It affects you. Of yeah, course. exactly. So, and, and then if you feel you've been exploited all day, when you go home at night, you've had a remarkably unsatisfying day. But if you smile at people, they desperately need that. They need that as much as you do. And they will smile back. And if you have added a little bit something to every single person's day who has come up to you, you will not go home at night dissatisfied, angry, and bitter. You will go home at night feeling just a little bit filled, fulfilled, because you've added something to other people's lives, and they in turn have responded to you. So look for those little tiny things, ways in which you could service the needs of others. Um, when you when you are going to try to sell somebody something, don't imagine it as snowing them, as you know, give, selling them an Please illusion. Them. Yep. Look at them. Look carefully at them. Look at their needs. Service their needs in every way you can, even if it means sending them to one of your competitors in order to have their Amen. needs fulfilled. Career because if writer. you watch out for their interests, as if they were your brother, they will watch out for yours. This and you may not it. sell them on this deal, you may send them to a competitor, but they will come back to you. I love it, and that is just such important advice for anyone out there. It's And, I, and you know, a lot of people out there, all the pundits, they talk about your why, finding your why, but this is about your how. This is how you go about living your life, how you interact with others who you don't know, in addition to the ones closest to you. And that's powerful stuff there. Um, Howard, I wanted, I do want to touch on one piece from <laughs> that short little period of your life when you couldn't get out of bed. Talk about in the same breath of this conversation where we're going here, the silver lining that came out of that. The silver there were linings. lots of silver linings. It was horrible. It was monstrous. Um, but look, I at the age of 10, I discovered a virtual world. And, First metaverse. Yes, and that's where I came alive. And that was the world of books. I was about and to say so porn. I, but no, 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 I read I read two life. books. I read two books a day. I read one book under the desk at school. I read another book when I got home. And that that virtual world of fiction and nonfiction saved my fucking life. Well, then in 1988, I got extremely sick, and I was so sick that for five years I couldn't talk, I couldn't utter a single word, and I couldn't have another human being in the room with me. Um, and uh, it took me a while to realize I was going to have to do this. It took three years, but I finally had my <sighs> assistant set up two computers next to the bed, 
because in those days, two computers had far less computing power than your your smartphone. Yeah. And all controlled by one keyboard and one monitor. Um, And I ventured out on this new dark space called the Internet. And it was dark because there was no such thing as the browser. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as the World Wide Web. There was no such thing as websites. None of the things we're accustomed to these days existed. But that dark realm gave me a space in which I could live. It gave me a space in which I could seduce women or they could seduce me. It gave me a space in which I could pontificate, in which I could think issues through with other people of significance. I was a member of the Human Behavior and Evolution Society, and that helped enormously. Um, This happened 10 years prior. You would have nothing, and you probably probably might have died probably would have died well 10 years earlier there already was an internet and i was so envious of college professors Ah. because they had access to it and i didn't and then in 1983 some bright entrepreneur in the music industry started offering internet services and we all bought computers the road Mm. managers all bought bought compact computers and the traditional ritual (laughs) up until then is the road manager sat down with the promoter of a date after the concert was over and they settled up on the money, which was a difficult process. Mm. And then they reported the next day to the manager on the phone at 10 o'clock or 10.15 in the morning. Well, now all those road managers bought compact computers. So they settled up the money at two o'clock in the morning and they put the information up online Instant. at 2.15. Right, exactly. And it changed the whole nature of the infrastructure of the touring industry. That was 1983. And we got on the internet. I had been the first person to totally computerize a public relations office in the music industry. I did that around 1981. We bought 17 K-Pro computers. Um, So all my staff members would have them and I would have three of them, um, one at the office and two at my house. And... um, And we went out on the Internet. So the Internet had been available to me, thank God, for a while. But and when I first went online um, and first showed up in cyberspace, which was this dark and lonely place, the place was so lonely that Peter Gabriel saw that I had appeared there. And it was so rare for him to find somebody he recognized online. And he came over in cyberspace and immediately said hello. And you could feel how glad. Um, he was deceived. Wow. That's, that's crazy here. So Howard, again, you know, this has been a fantastic journey and I, I implore everybody to really go down the rabbit holes here and I want to be conscious of your time here. So I want to bring it home with, with, with two questions that I ask every guest on my show, because Howard, this is my masterclass. This is how I learn through osmosis. So let me ask you this. What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every day? The single greatest piece of advice I ever received was when I was named the editor of the literary magazine at NYU. I hated literary magazines. I was given no choice in the matter. Um, and I, uh, a kid saw me looking very confused in the hallway and invited me down for a cup of coffee. And I ordered a glass of water. I didn't know what have a cup of coffee means. And, um, and he said, if you could do anything you wanted with this magazine, what would it be? And that was the most important question I'd ever been asked. I mean, my answer was a picture book. Um, So if you could do anything with any aspect of your life that you wanted, what would it be? And in some instances, you will actually have the opportunity through dint of extraordinary persistence, absolutely extraordinary persistence to be that thing, do that thing, participate in that thing. Persistence is one of my pillars of success, patient, polite persistence. And another word that is deeply embedded into my soul, Howard, and I think you have it too, is tenacity. So last but not least, when when you look back on your life and you think about those dark, dark years and times when you couldn't get out of bed and you were at your lowest and you had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity, what did you look to? What pulled you out of that? And on the flip side, when you want to show gratitude and appreciation for life and curiosity and astonishment and all these incredible experiences that you have and this life and and the legacy that you built. Howard Bloom, what keeps you focused in life? What is your compass? What is your North Star? Well, a a focus is doing things that are useful to other people. But focus is also, for me, 
Following up on what I started with at the age of 10, when I first embarked on science, my impression was that science was about the aspiration to omniscience, the the desire to know everything. Since there is no God, it is our job to do her work, says one of my uh, epigrams. Um, And so we imagine that a God can be all-knowing. It's our job to try to be all-knowing. And though we cannot achieve that, I'm, and I'm trying to roll up everything I know into one bowl uh, and roll it with rough strife through the iron gates of life, to quote Andrew Marvel. Um, and I'm, try- I'm trying to do that with my body of work so you can understand how all the pieces, all the eight books in my body of work fit together and my life and things like working with Michael Jackson and Prince. And I'm trying to get that across before I die. And then there's a Howard Bloom Institute that's been formed to keep this work alive after I'm gone, because I haven't had children. I've had books. And those books are designed to be permanent uh, or the closest thing to it imaginable. I love it. I mean, we're not going to, you know, you're not thinking going to the Ted Williams route. We're not keeping your head on ice. Uh, we're not keeping a head on ice. No, 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 no. That would be silly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be silly. Uh, Howard Bloom, this has been fantastic. This has been an incredible journey. I'm sure we could make this into a 20-part episode and keep talking for days <laughs> here, but the show does have to come to an end here. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn um, more? They can go to howardbloom.net, or they can go to Howard Bloom, all one word, with two O's on Bloom, howardbloom.institute. I love it. Howard, hang with me for one second as I sign off here. Folks, this has been a fascinating journey. It's been a rabbit hole where I have been the co-pilot. I'm just kind of steering the ship and letting this guy over here be the rockets behind it. But I want to thank you all for listening and spending the last 49 minutes and 22 seconds with us. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Please follow us on the social media channels. Remember, look out for one another, take care of each other, and catch us next week on another great episode of The Podcast. And thank you, Dr. Simon Mills. We love you. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>